So this is Current Yield, Grant's interest rate observer of the air, and I'm Jim Grant. And I was going to say with me, as always, is the great deputy editor of Grant's, but Evan Lorenz is not here. Harrison, what, what happened? Oh, yeah. Well, he called in. He called in not sick. He's, he's healing. He, um, but anyway, he's, he's well or weller and we'll be back soon. Uh, Harrison Waddell, my confrere, is at the control panel today. And with us uh, is uh, Zeke Fox. Zeke Fox is the author of the week. Now, I know there has been a lot of hoo-ha about um, a certain biography of Elon Musk, but I'm here to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, that the book of the week is Number Go Up. Inside Crypto's Wild Rise and Staggering Fall by Zeke Fox. And uh, what to say about this? Oh, yes. Well, I think the, the, the test of sincerity of the fan of a book is how many copies you buy, right? One, yeah, whatever. Harrison, how many copies of uh, Number Go Up have we purchased to date? 300, yeah. Because I figure I've got to have one home, one in my book bag, one in the country. You know, um, that's three. But uh, we are distributing uh, number go up to the uh, guests at the uh, 40th anniversary Grants Conference coming up on October 3rd at the Plaza Hotel. And Zeke is going to be on hand to talk about, not to, to pitch his book. That would be uh, a little bit commercial. So Zeke is not going to pitch his book. He'll do that to me, but he'll be there to um, wave at his fans and maybe sign a copy or two. But anyway, without further ado, Zeke, Fox, number go up. Bravo, Zeke. <laughs> wow! Yeah, thank you so much, Jim. I'm I'm really honored to that you'd have me on. Well, I I would not have let this week slip without having you on. Um, you know, I am going to say that uh, I think this whole crypto wave, this nonsense, this 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 puff of of carbon dioxide they call this bubble. I think it's worth it because it elicited number go up. <laughs> The, the book about it is worth having suffered it. Uh, well, that's how I feel. I feel lucky that I was there for this insane bubble that I don't think we'll ever see again. Oh, don't be so quick. <laughs> no, no, there's no never in finance. No, it's recurring. It's, it's all cycles. In fact, I'm going to uh, demonstrate this with one epigram. Uh, I'm not sure I'll prove it to your satisfaction, Zeke, but uh, I am now have opened before me another book, which is uh, called, the title is not so uh, so uh, inviting, so uh, beckoning as number go up, but it's called Economics and the Public Welfare, the worst title over a good book ever published. This is a uh, financial and economic history of America, 1914 to 46 by Benjamin Anderson, well known to financial history obsessives. And uh, here is a comment in a chapter headed Mob Mind, Mob Mind in 1928-29. And uh, people are ruefully, uh, mournfully regretting what they did during the peak of that stock market boom. And here is someone's um, comment on the nature of that bubble. Quote, uh, the more intense the craze, the higher the type of intellect that succumbs to it. That's pretty good, right? I love that. And that, But do you think that's true of the crypto boom? Um because it was pretty intense, but do we want to compliment the people well, who succumbed to it? I'm, I'm going to say, I'm going to adapt this for the present day. And I'm going to say, the more intense the craze, the glitzier and the richer the celebrity that gets sucked into it for money. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> That's more like it, right? Yeah, okay. Well, anyway, to re revert to the uh, uh, to the point, not to belabor it, but I, th I would say that uh, finance, the history of finance is a history of cycles, a history of... Uh, of uh, a fact of delusion, of belief, of uh, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, tell us about this. I want to first of all know who your friend Jay is. The book begins with um, 
with Zeke having one of these encounters that many of us had during the crypto bubble, a neighbor, a well-intended high school buddy, in this case, Jay, never mind last name, Jay, uh, buys uh, Dogecoin, right? Yeah, so I'm on this, I'm, you know, well removed from high school, but I'm still on this group text with this, with this group of friends uh, from back in Boston. And Jay and I, he's one of my best friends in high school, we used to write a humor column for the school newspaper together. And so it really got to me that he was texting us all saying, we got to buy this thing called Doggy Coin. And he was, it wasn't like, he wasn't saying Doggy Coin. First of all, it's Dogecoin. He didn't even know how to say it. But he didn't think that Dogecoin was the future of finance. He, nobody was telling him Dogecoin was going to do anything. But he was just convinced that he had figured out the psychology of investing and that this Dogecoin, he was getting, he was convinced he was the one who was getting in early on this Dogecoin bandwagon. And he did. And he did. <laughs> we, and he was saying we all should too. And I was telling him, because I think he's a pretty, like, he is a very funny guy. And I, so it was just annoying to me because I'm like, this isn't even a funny joke. Dogecoin, it was actually invented, uh, I think, 2013, 2014. It had already been made fun of on the Daily it was Show. A, it was a satire, right? It was, yeah, uh, uh, right. It, it was, Dogecoin was sort of... It was a like sarca this, sarcastic coin. They're like, oh, you like all these coins. How about one with like a dog on it? And then this was just sort of brought back into the zeitgeist somehow. And so he, I told him, don't do it. This will never come back. It's right, not even a funny right, joke. Yeah. But he, he made this big score. And then he texted me and my friends, I am freaking Nostradamus, if you'd all listen to me. Also, he took his kids to Disneyland and the proceeds of the thing you told him not to do. And the, the trouble is, that we've all been here, Zeke, the trouble is that you were in the business and he isn't, right? You should know, you, know, you cover scams for a living. Yes. So like, I think of myself as kind of an authority on these things, like, <laughs> not much of an investor, but someone uh, who knows when yeah. something's too good to okay. be true. Yeah. And so I was a little offended that he... Of course. He'd been, you know, he'd made his money. It's, it's called good old-fashioned American envy. Okay, so I'm going to read you, Zeke, who wrote it. You'll, this will be familiar to you. You read this book too, right? I did Proof once yet. at the end, and I liked it. Oh, it's fabulous. Um, so, quote, I'd like to tell you that I was the person who exposed it all. Uh, the heroic investigator who saw through one of history's greatest frauds, but I got tricked with everyone else. I was sitting next to the biggest con man since Bernie Madoff with a clear view of his emails, internal chats, trading records, and I had no idea he what he was up to. Okay, I can't top that. But I can match it. I was I started out as a, as a as a reporter on the Baltimore Sun, and when you start at the Sun, you start by covering the, what they call the police district. You're a crime reporter, and I you know did that for a while. I drove around from police district. This is in the uh, in the early 70s, all cities were going to rack and roll. I drove around from police to, and I asked the desk sergeant, anything going on? He'd say, nope. I'd say, okay, thanks. <laughs> okay, so uh, years passed as they are wont to do, and my wife and I sitting down and watching The Wire. <laughs> it was fabulous uh, drama about uh, the narcotics underworld of Baltimore. And it was like a different city. I, I had no, I, I, I thought this city was <laughs> full of nice people conducting a nine to five. <laughs> So anyway, yeah, so it does happen. So tell, okay, so so you and Jay um, have this encounter. You are fired up a little bit, you know, and, and you look, so how did it happen? You came to uh, to to travel hundreds of thousands of miles, right? And, and interview hundreds of people in the cause of exposing something that you didn't at first see was 
a thing to expose. So I'm an investigative reporter for, I've been one for a long time at, at Bloomberg and Business Week. I've written lots of stories about the shady side of finance. And I love diving into a scam and flipping through a contract, trying to figure out like what loopholes the guy's trying to exploit, yeah. looking, tracing the offshore companies. But when people would tell me you should look at crypto, it's perfect for you. But I just, I didn't want to, I didn't like it. And I felt, it felt sort of, um, I've, say something like this in the book, but I felt like uh, sending an experienced investigator to look into a cryptocurrency would be like sending Sam Sifton, like the snooty restaurant reviewer, to go review like a new Taco Bell in Union Square. Like these these guys are just saying, hey, like my coin, oh, I got a coin, it's going to go up. Like there, there's nothing to investigate. So that is what I thought, but I was totally wrong. And after this uh, uh, argument with Jay, my editor at Business Week came by my desk and he proposed a that I do look into a certain part of crypto and I got totally sucked in. And within, that was maybe like six months or a year later, I found myself sitting next to Sam Bankman Freed, the boy then, the boy genius of crypto, 29 years old, worth $20 billion, darling of venture capitalists in Washington. And it was amazing. You know, I've, I've written about bankers and they're usually quite careful about how they interact with the press. Sam let me pull up a chair next to him and was answering emails from CEOs, uh, other billionaires. He's on Slack with his company. He's opening spreadsheets that show like his dashboard for how much money FTX is making. And like we now know all sorts of shenanigans were going on. And like it was an insane thing to invite a reporter into the room. But, you know, he acted like he had totally like he had nothing to hide. And even though I was very skeptical of cryptocurrencies, I saw his business that he was running FTX as kind of like a offshore casino for gambling on all these dumb coins. But I thought that it was, as far as these casinos went, probably an honest one. I had no idea that he was basically taking the money deposited at the casino out the back and using it to gamble at other casinos. Yeah. So um, tell me about, as they say in California, about your journey. So you, you, went, to, you went to see him. And uh, how did all these interviews happen and, and sequentially? And then what made you go from person to person? Tell us the story of the book. So this quest started with Tether. I really, my editor said, what do you know about stable coins? And I knew about, there was one called Tether. And this means, if the listeners aren't familiar, a stable coin is a coin whose value is not supposed to go up. It's supposed to be fixed at $1 because each coin is supposed to be backed by a real dollar held in a bank somewhere. So when I started looking to, into it, this company Tether had issued about 50 billion Tether tokens, which meant that it was supposed to have 50 billion real dollars somewhere, but they weren't saying where. And I felt like, okay, this is the kind of mystery I'm used to. This sounds like a pretty good one. And people, there were... Oh. At, your, at your comfort zone, see? Yes. <laughs> this is, I, I don't need to figure out how blockchain works. I just need to find the $50 billion. Like, this sounds good to me. And at the time, um, even uh, Janet Yellen had called a big meeting of all the top financial regulators to talk about Tether and whether they had the $50 billion. Uh, Jim Cramer was on TV saying this was going to crash the crypto economy and even maybe like spill over into real financial markets. <laughs> People really thought that there, there might be no money backing these Tethers. So I set out to try to find this money. And because, so Tether plays like a really important role in this whole crypto world, especially in, it did in the early years, because it was a key way. I mean, I, the way I see it, the goal of a crypto company is to collect 
real money and give people random tokens. Um, well, that's, like, that's a pretty good business model. Yes. But step one is like easier said than done, especially because, at, especially in the early years, banks did not want to take on crypto companies as clients. So they struggled to accept real money from customers who wanted to send it to them. And so these like offshore casinos, return to that metaphor, would say, hey, if you want to come gamble here, first go to my cashier. His name is Tether. He will sell you these Tether tokens for real money. And then you can take the tokens to come gamble at my casino. So Tether was sort of like a central cashier, a central bank for this whole a bridge, industry. A bridge to, from legit to... Uh... Yes. And I just, I couldn't believe it when I started looking into Tether. I'd never seen a company with more red flags. Yeah. I write in the book that I felt like the company was just quilted with red flags. It was, uh, its CEO and its CFO had never been given an interview, had never had never given an interview and had been spotted in public. So most of these guys, crypto guys are out there. They, they have, they're on the crypto conference circuit. These guys are were never seen in public. One of them had been seen so little that people suspected he might not exist. Um, the company, it was unclear where it was based. They had suggested that the British Virgin Islands regulator oversee them. But when I checked with that regulator, he was like, no. Um, and <laughs> the, the CFO, I, I was told this is the man in charge. His name's Giancarlo Divasini. And there wasn't that much about him online. But one thing I found was a photo shoot he had done for an art show when he was younger. He's an, He's Italian. When he was a young man, he'd been a plastic surgeon and he gave an interview for this art show where he said that he had abandoned this career. He'd walked away from it because he thought that the augmenting breasts and fixing noses, it was all a lie and he needed to find something that was true. He'd gone into... A tether! Yes. <laughs> so that one of the other co-founders of Tether was... Brock Pierce, who was, um, if you've seen The Mighty Ducks... He should have been president. Yeah, oh, definitely. Uh, did did you vote for him? <laughs> um, and he outpolled Kanye in some states. <laughs> um, yeah, so Brock, one-time presidential candidate, Brock Pierce, who he's in, the, he's in The Mighty Ducks. He's the kid in the flashback who misses a penalty shot in the beginning. And he had become sort of this crypto visionary, and he'd helped create Tether. Um, God's will. Yes. He, he said to me, a great talker, um, couldn't imagine like a better character. He said to me, um, medulla for creation. I only take on missions impossible. Yeah. He, he was, a, he's a, he's a, he's a natural 400 talker. Sometimes it's like 280 or 290. Mostly it's a very good talker. Yeah. Um, so I'm trying to figure out what's with this coin that seems to be at the center of crypto markets. And it takes me all over the place. And it took me to the, to Sam Bankman-Fried's office because his exchange was one of the biggest users of Tether. So in my search, I'm just, I'm, it gave me a great excuse to meet with all the top players in crypto um, as this bubble was just getting bigger and bigger. Yeah. Okay, I want to, I, I, I think this, I, I did not see this in your book, Zeke, although it, book, I, I, uh, I hesitate to bring that up because it would suggest a flaw between the covers that I uh, absolutely refuse to credit that notion as a flaw. But um, um, I, I am going to hold this uh, graph up to the microphone so the listeners can see it as well. But this is a graph of the price of another of cryptocurrency called Ether. All right. Mm. See this? Okay. Ladies and gentlemen. Good. Harrison. Okay. <laughs> this shows a spike in November of 2021 to about $4,500 per Ether. 
Ethereum is the cryptocurrency. 40, and uh, so this is it's right near this peak. Okay, at about that peak, within days of that peak, a story moves on something called The Verge, which covers or covered, anyways, um, crypto world. And it reports on a one ton tungsten cube that had just been purchased by a crypto organization, a uh, decentralized autonomous organization, DAO, for $250,000 in crypto. Now, what did they buy? They bought the non-fungible token of a tungsten cube, which afforded them the right once a year to visit and touch that cube. And they had the NFT, which of course is duplicable and affords no actual ownership privileges. So that was the, the literal peak of Ether. And in my mind, it was about the peak in the whole business. I mean, and, and the story and the, this is quite interesting. As a period piece, it says, it suggests that um, uh, that what commanded tungsten, tungsten was a thing, remember this? It, it, for people, I'm not going to say, I don't mean this in any bad way, uh, say people your age. Say, I got this thing about tungsten, have a tungsten, no? I, I do remember everyone was tweeting about the tungsten cubes. People wanted little ones for their desk. I don't remember why, but it was definitely a ah, thing for a while. Ah, Aha, aha. So The Verge speculates on why. It says, well, in this day and age of, uh, of immateriality, people crave something to touch. And this drove me crazy as a gold bug. Yeah, that's me, gold bug. Because here they have the entire world of gold, which has existed for millennia, has done monetary service for millennia. But no, they have to have <laughs> Bitcoin and tungsten. Okay, so tungsten. So it was material in a world of immateriality. But here is the thing. Here's, here's The Verge describing why this NFT, why Okay, quote, the simplest and most convincing answer, though, is that buying tungsten cubes is just a good, solid meme. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> what does that mean? What can it mean? It's really, um, you, in, that was one of the most fun chapters to write, the NFT chapter, because there were just so many examples to choose from. My favorite was this one called loot and it was sort of like a dungeons and dragons type game and the nfts you were but it didn't exist there was no game to play they never make the game it's better that if you don't make the game it's better because then the possibilities are just infinite <laughs> but this was the best example because what they sold were nfts and each one would it was like a card a black square and it would say on it just typed like magic sword boots shield and they argued that by not depicting the shield or the boots or the magic sword and by not creating the game this would allow the community to create an even more valuable game and people were really paying thousands of dollars i, I don't remember how high it got but i'm gonna say like maybe like tens of thousands of dollars for the the rarest of these cards and the nothing ever came to be as far as i know um people really talked about it like this was uh the, this was the future. Well, it wasn't part of this. Uh, this. This. Uh, you know, Bitcoin is is meant to be a reaction to uh, QE and to free money and to the monetary shenanigans that followed the financial crisis of two thousand seven nine. And uh, and and maybe the uh, the phenomenon of NFTs, maybe the phenomena of uh, all these crap coins, and maybe this is just a satirical send up of QE. I mean, I can see that, and I do think that. Uh the availability of cheap funding was key to this whole and stim bubble. stimmies, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it helped with the the but for the regular buyer to have, you know, some cash to buy their loot card. But also, a lot of these companies had 
venture capital funding. Yes. And we're able to raise millions of dollars. Speaking of which, one of the funding rounds of uh, SBF's, uh, what is it, what's the name of the company? FTX. FTX, of course. Okay. FTX was a funding round in the sum of $420 million, uh, $420.69 million dollars four two zero point six nine million which as you discreetly note is a 420 is a marijuana meme and 69 means something that they had in high school right so how was it that this particular number which is you note in this fine book was meant as a kind of a schoolboy joke of a thing how did this get by all of the due diligence and the uh, compliance teams of these serious investment venture capital companies what what was what, going through their minds this is just an example of how Sam was able to, he almost, uh, it's kind of like um, he would neg these guys. He would, the more he insulted these venture capitalists, the more they loved him. So I think they knew he was making them invest at this silly number. And they liked that he was asserting this power over them. Another example is that uh, there's a piece written about Sam that was posted on Sequoia's website. Yes. And they describe in it that they became aware that during his pitch to Sequoia, one of these venture capital firms, Sam was playing video games. And instead of being like, what a jerk, we won't <laughs> give him any money. They were like, wow, this kid, this kid's really got it. He, we, he gave the pitch and he wasn't even paying attention. How about we give him $420 million just like he wants? But in this crypto bubble, just not, the prices of everything was just going up and up. And I felt like, People are just tossing the rules of traditional finance out the window, and they weren't really paying any attention to how these companies would make any real money. But what, at one point in in, um, in number go up, you you use that exact you quote that exact phrase coming from someone who say who was saying that um, that that was that was kind of the business model. And then then uh, you Zeke the author's voice says, "I'm not a professional software coder, or I'm not a professional computer." But I'm not sure that number go up as an actual business model. <laughs> right. No, that it was truly, um, you see all the headlines that Wall Street is considering investing in crypto or like so much and such or firm. Or Fidelity, might... Fidelity, the, one of the, 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 the granite firms of old Puritan New England is, is big in this stuff, right? So I don't know about that one specifically, but what I will say is that crypto people are great at creating this impression that this big wave of institutional adoption is right around the corner. And when I went to my first Bitcoin conference, where I heard the guy say this crazy stuff about number go up, when I was going there, I was skeptical of crypto, but I also sort of had this idea in my head that I was going to see guys from or girls from Fidelity there, and that there would be this sort of respectable Wall Street crew who was going to be talking about sort of normal use cases for crypto. And instead, what I got were a bunch of like would-be prophets and zealots who are who are saying number go up technology ensures that, you know, Bitcoin right. price will rise forever. Except the, the, the establishment did try to come in, right, towards the end. I, so I see it, definitely some people did invest or get involved, but I see it more like, you know, Wall Street banks and funded the construction of all the casinos in Las Vegas. Like they saw that, people wanted to gamble on crypto, they were going to yeah. facilitate that and make money on it, but they were not going to put large the sums of their own money into it. Okay, tell, getting back to the narrative of the book, tell me about the, uh, the arc of your suspicion. So at first, Tethers like, is my main target. And the pretty early on in the journey, 
I obtained some documents that show that Tether had invested billions of dollars in short-term loans to Chinese companies. And this seemed kind of problematic to me because Tether is supposed to be, each token is supposed to be backed by $1. And I'm supposed to be able to redeem it for a dollar whenever I want. And if I, as the Tether holder, think there's a chance that I will not be able to redeem, it's in my interest to cash it in because I don't want to be the one stuck holding the Tether tokens when it's revealed it's, that there's some sort of problem. So, but on the Tether company side, their incentive is to take the money that's been entrusted with them and invest in it stuff. And at the time, interest rates were so low, they couldn't, it was hard to find some way to earn a little extra yield. And it looked like they'd invested in this esoteric stuff. And to me, it seemed like it created the risk of a bank run. This, this, this uh, skips a little bit of the book. We'll get back to the middle of it in a second. But uh, toward, towards the end, you, you, you observe that uh, with the rise in, in interest rates, suddenly the tethered business model is pretty fine, right? And, and they uh, pay no interest. And they are suddenly earning interest out of all securities, U.S. government obligations. And suddenly it's earning more than many legitimate companies. Uh, uh, I didn't mean to say it that way, Tether. <laughs> earning more than some listed companies that are components of the S&P 500. Right. So the more I learned about Tether, I really didn't feel like I got to the bottom of this question of, do they have all of the money? And I certainly found evidence that it made some strange investments and put the money at risk. And I definitely found evidence that Tether was being used for some really weird purposes. But like, as you said, even if they had, let's say, hypothetically, they'd been short some money in the past. Now, Tether's grown so that they have $80 billion. And if you believe their financial statements that they put out, they've got most of it invested in U.S. treasuries, and they can easily clip $4 billion a year. That's almost pure profit. It's a very small operation. So these guys like Giancarlo, the plastic surgeon, is now, you know, a billionaire. So are the other top people, I'm sure. And Tether is, yeah, as profitable as Nike. Um, and yeah, it's not what I would have predicted at all when I when I set out on this journey, because as I was as I was investigating, other crypto companies started to fail one after another. Yeah, right. And there was even like a little run on Tether for a minute there where people cash. So since Tethers are on the blockchain, they, as you have written in the past, they're sort of like digital bearer bonds. So there's no identifying information for each customer of Tether, except for the people who are dealing with the company directly. Right. Di divorce bonds. Yeah. <laughs> um, I only know those from heat. Uh, <laughs> that's my only reference for bearer bonds. But um, the, where was I on top? So I don't know. It was, yeah, everybody's. So, so it's, a, it's, a, it's a cockroach. It survives everything. I yes. Think I read in your and, pages. Yes. And they, uh, what I was going to say is that you can see that people are cashing in their tethers. And so at one point people cashed in five or $10 billion of tethers. And if they hadn't got their money back, I'm sure we would have heard the complaints, right? But that also doesn't mean that they necessarily have every last penny of their 80 billion. It, it, I, the more I looked into it, the more I realized it was sort of a impossible question. And I do think now they have the, if there was some sort of hole, they have the ability to earn their way out of it. Well, this, this brings us, um, I think to, uh, uh, to an observation that um, uh, that every crypto skeptic and bear must face comfortably or otherwise, and that is that for all of the ravages of this bear market that uh, began in, uh, I guess, 2021, 2022, um, uh, a lot of people lost money, except Bitcoin is a $25,000 number, plus or minus 1,000, 200. Tether exists, 
And uh, I think in your epilogue, you point out that um, that for many people, uh, Bitcoin, which is a clunky piece of monetary machinery, that's what it is at all by by type, but it's a clunky piece of, uh, of, uh, of software that uh, has no uh, airline miles attached. You know, what's it for? But nonetheless, it exists and people are willing to pay $25,000, $26,000 per after all of this, right? So what are we missing? With Bitcoin... I feel like the Bitcoin people, so I'm a believer that something has to be useful in the long run to have value. And the Bitcoin people had really had told me, you got to check out El Salvador. It's the country that's adopted Bitcoin. You'll see that it's useful there. I went down there and it was like a joke. Like there was nothing to even, nobody's using Bitcoin. Was, people would just laugh at me when I asked about it. It was impossible to investigate. So my opinion of like the usefulness of Bitcoin really was really low. Let's not slip by so fast on your trip to El Salvador. It begins, if I remember correctly from your pages, it begins with a Bitcoin conference in Miami. And um, and uh, the president of El Salvador, is it president or general? The president appears via Zoom. Okay. And there, there's this young Bitcoin bro on stage in a hoodie. Like if you... If Hollywood wrote a Bitcoin bro, it would be this guy. He's And he's got this mop of curly hair. Right, he's wearing his hoodie. Right. He's cursing a lot because he's acting pretty cool. Is his baseball cap on backwards by any chance? I, I believe it usually is. I don't know if it was. The president of El Salvador also likes the backward baseball cap. So the president announces in English to this audience of Bitcoiners, hey, my country will now make Bitcoin legal tender. And this guy, uh, Jack Mallers, is in tears as he announces this. And I'm, this is one of my first, I'm on, I'm on, this is like my first week in crypto. And I'm just like, what is going on? And I look around and other people are crying. So well, like, well, are, this, guy, this guy said, uh, I'm quoting from your book, I will die on this hill. This is the hill I die on. Yes. And so, <laughs> I mean, he, he, but this is, this is, this, now, is, this is, this is, this is, this is a religious experience. Yeah. For some of these people. Yes. Now for him, I caught up Financial with him. experience. Well, I <laughs> caught up with him at the next Bitcoin conference and I arranged to have an interview with him backstage. And I, I was, I think already planning to go to El Salvador. I wanted to get his advice. Uh, he just, last time I saw him, he was crying about it. <laughs> and so I'm like, hey, Jack, can we talk about El Salvador? How's that experiment going? And I mean, not like a very hard question. And he just gets all sort of annoyed. And he's like, bro, like, that's not what I'm talking about this, this conference. And then I'm like, well, when was the last time you were there? And he's like, I don't remember. And I'm like, you don't remember when you went to El Salvador? And he's like, no, can we move on? And I'm like, uh... oh, and then he said, like, it's important to remember it's not my project. Um, so that, so, so that it was the so cool. hill he was bored on rather than died on. Yes, he he moved on okay. from that hill. He did Got not it. die on the hill. <laughs> um, he at that conference he showed a video of himself somehow at some convenience store that he convinced to accept Bitcoin buying some beer or something. That was like the big achievement. My local subway station is in Brooklyn, Clark Street in Brooklyn. And um, by the convenience store, there is a Bitcoin dispenser. Yes. And you see people go by there and plunk in a couple of bucks and get uh, whatever. So it's it's still, as they say, a thing. I think like it's such a powerful story, like the future of money, that it's so obviously the future of money would be very valuable. And that it's just sort of entered the consciousness that there are people who buy cryptocurrency and get rich that I think it's going to take a long time before that slowly peters out. But I don't see how you sustain interest in this without yeah. number go up. Yeah, right. It's a momentum thing. It's a, yeah. that, that was my, I'd ask these guys, that was, I mean, so as a writer, 
you need to like observe things and write about them. All right. So I, 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 I remember would, that. Yes. So I would say, um, I, I would often ask them if, if there was anything to observe. <laughs> and there was, I remember this one guy and he, he had told me about this, uh, spaceship video game based on NFTs. And I'd heard people already bragging about that. They'd sold like around $200 million of the NFT spaceships. And he talked about the game. And honestly, like I like video games as much as the next guy. I'm like, that sounds fun. So I'm, can I have a demonstration? You know, it'd be a better scene if we're playing a video game. And he's like, oh, no, no, no. Like, we've sold the NFTs. You can, people are trading them at a profit. There's even some way to like earn interest on this virtual spaceships. The game's five years away. No game. We can't play it. Okay, this is this gets back to the Wall Street gag about uh, trading sardines and eating sardines. You know this one? No. Oh, well, so uh, how does this go? Okay, let's set it in a uh, prisoner of war camp. And uh, guys uh, have a lot of time on their hands, as to, to your subjects in your book, a lot of time and some money. And the prisoner of war, they get some money from the Red Cross and from home. And uh, they are in receipt of cans of sardines to, uh, to have, right? They start to trade them. And um, this goes up and up. And uh, the guys get richer and richer, some of them. And, uh, and one day around lunchtime, somebody decides that uh, with his latest acquisition, he's going to take some money off the table. He opens it up. And P-U, ah, these things are rotten. And the guy who sold it to him says, oh, but you shouldn't have done that. That's not an eating sardine. It's a trading sardine. <laughs> I think I've heard that story told better. But that, that's well, no, these were definitely trading sardines. <laughs> that was that was one lesson I learned again and again. When I would, there, you look, yeah, I opened the can and like they were, yeah, it's full of sand. They didn't even like bother to put original sardines in there so that they could rot. Yeah. What was your favorite chapter? Um, I think my favorite story was... Uh, the crypto guys would often tease me that I didn't have any crypto and that I couldn't understand crypto without without buying some. And I started to feel like, I don't know, maybe they had a point. Maybe there was something I was missing by not being part of the club. So I decided to, but I decided if I was going to join the club, I wanted to go right to the top and I wanted to buy one of what, at the time, what was like one of the top NFTs, like a real blue chip. And this was the Bored Ape Yacht Club. Oh, that was a great one. Yeah. So these are like, if you don't remember them, they're cartoon pictures of kind of like ugly monkeys, some of them wearing silly hats. And at the time, they were going for maybe 500 grand. And a lot of celebrities had them, Jimmy Fallon, Paris Hilton. Let, let, let's go back over. So these are pictures of ugly monkeys and with funny caps. And when you bought one, what did you own? So it's very interesting because the pictures are online. We can all see them. We can all download them. Um, we could make them our Twitter picture, no one no one could do anything about it. But what we cannot do without paying the 500 grand is use the blockchain to prove that we paid 500 grand for the monkey picture. So when you buy it, you are buying the right to the, the ownership of this on the blockchain. So this is bragging rights on the blockchain. Pretty much. Now, there was a whole there's a whole debate over whether you're also it, some people thought they were buying valuable intellectual property rights, um, but this always struck me as far-fetched because there's, I think, more than 20,000 of the monkeys, and, like, at best, you're going to get one monkey movie. So, and also, like, I'm in the intellectual <laughs> property business. It's not that valuable. Um, so that I, that was, like, a red herring. Um, but you do, oh, you do get to go to a party, and the party's called Ape Fest. It was actually right near here. It was on the pier in the, in the seaport, and it's a big party they had 
Snoop and Eminem were the headliners. And I thought this was my chance to sort of see what it's like, right. mingle okay. with all these top crypto traders. So one night after my kids were asleep, I sat my wife down and I said, I got to talk with you about something for the book. Um, look, it's really, I, I think that it's really important. I get to see inside this crypto world. I got to get one of these monkeys. Um, and I explained a little bit about what it was. I think she'd heard of it. Maybe they were, they're pretty big yeah, in the news. Sure. Um, and I'm like, but it's kind of expensive. And she's like, okay. And maybe I'm having some fun with it. So I'm like, hey, so Nikki, how much do you think these do cost? And she's like, well, you sent me down here. It's probably a lot. I don't know, maybe like five grand. And luckily, uh, there are monkey derivatives that are cheaper. So I was able, the cheapest one at the time, I'm like, it's, it's going to be 40,000. Um, and she's just like horrified. Um, <laughs> you know, and we're... Uh, she married you? Yeah. <laughs> but I'm, she's heard, over the years, she's supported me on all sorts of weird adventures. And as I explained it, she soon, she quickly saw that this w would be a good chapter for the book. I had to go to the monkey party. The reader would want me to. Um, and she said, and I, you know, I'd gotten an advance for the book. So she said, go ahead, spend it on the monkey picture. Um, and so first of all, buying the monkey, it was actually very instructive because most people, even people who have some crypto, they only get it on like Coinbase or yeah. FTX or something. And, but to acquire one of these NFTs, you have to like actually use a decentralized crypto app. And it all sounds like well and good when you hear the pitch for it. But when you actually go do it and see what it is, it boils down to, like, if you use Google Chrome, there's, like, the box where you write in what website, the URL for the website you want to go to. Then there's, like, maybe you have the red icon where it blocks the ads or the pop-up windows. So now you're going to have another icon that's a picture of a fox. And you essentially need to send your, by the time I bought it, it the price had crashed, which was mixed blessing. So I, was tw I had to send $20,000 from Bank of America to the Fox in my browser. And before you install the Fox, they, there's an instructional video. And in this video, they say, um, look, like if you type anything wrong, the money's gone. If you forget your password, the money's gone. They suggest engraving the password on a metal plate and burying it in your yard. Like, and I'm like, I'm not doing that. This is, and this is, uh, but this doesn't make me feel good. Everyone's, there was an epidemic of monkey hacking back then. So everyone's telling me the monkey's gonna get stolen. Um, and. Bank of America called me and when I went to go send this wire transfer. As well they might have. Yeah. And they're like, we think you're being scammed. And I'm like, I am being scammed. Please put the transfer through. <laughs> um, it was like, it's like when you sold it off anyway. <laughs> so I get to, I get to Ape Fest and I was trying to like be an enthusiastic participant. So, because people talked about NFTs, you got to join this cool community. So I'd be in the same club as like Jimmy Fallon or uh, Bieber, Eminem and Snoop had them. So I was like, I named my monkey, he, he had a sweater made of maggots and he had a pipe. And I said that his name would be Dr. Scum and that he would have this magical power where if he smoked weed, that it would make him really smart. And I was prepared to like, you know, take part in the monkey games and show people my monkey and talk about this. And, you know, I was... Go, I wanted to go for it. I get there. So first of all, my friends who are not in the Board Ape Yacht Club are like, you're a moron. Like you're, why you're would just they, love Why would they say that? Well, I think, I, go on, go on, go on. I think my mom took my monkey picture and sent it back to me and said, this is mine now. And I'm like, no, it's not. For very complicated reasons that I can't explain right now. Um, so, but when I'm there, first of all, no one cares about my Board Ape because everyone has one. Even pimply teenagers have like million dollar board apes and they're like your apes ugly 
It's one of the worst ones. Um, like sometimes, since it's sort of like culty, sometimes they would pretend that like they were interested, but I could tell what they thought about my $20,000 ape. Everybody's just uh, drunk or stoned, except for me. I'm the one with like taking yeah. notes on what they say. Um, and, but yes, I did. And the whole time I'm terrified. Oh, people told, they were like, you can't keep it on your phone. Cause that's like a, there were rumors going around that there was a billboard because Ape Fest was a big deal. Thousands of ape holders flew to New York for this. Mm -hmm. There were rumors going around. There was a billboard in Times Square that purported to be for like an ape dating site. But if you took a picture of the QR code, it would steal your ape and it'd be gone forever. So I was like, okay, I'm not burying my ape in the backyard. That's too hard. I'm just going to keep, there's a, I'm going to keep it on my computer. I'm going to close the computer. I don't know if, like, I think that does provide some protection against hacking. I'm not sure, but I think it does. But that meant that all I had on my phone was the same picture of my ape as my mom. And everyone had to sort of take my word for it that I owned it. Um, the, the story culminates with, I saw Jimmy Fallon there, who had been kind of one of the big promoters of this whole thing. And I went to go talk to him, went behind the velvet rope and said, uh, check out Dr. Scum. He like politely looked at Dr. Scum. And then I said, uh, at this, since the price had crashed, everyone there had lost a lot of money. And I was like, you know, how do you feel about your investment recommendations? And he was like, oh, no, no, like I'm not an investor. I just did it for the community. And like, I'm looking out at all these drunk guys milling around. And I'm like, oh, sure. Um, but yes, that was, that was one of the most fun parts. I think of these apes. I think of the, uh, the Simpsons episode with uh, um, monkeys or uh, in a newsroom and uh, all look like a rewrite guys in the 1930s era newspaper picture. And, uh, and Mr. Simpson is having an experiment to see if um, a certain great novel can be replicated through uh, many, many, many monkeys typing many. And uh, <laughs> rips out one of the pieces of the typing paper the monkey has been typing. And it reads, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. You dumb ape. <laughs> 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 well, Zeke, this has been one heck of a podcast. I, I, uh, I thank you for being our guest, and I want—I'm not going to close this without uh, reiterating the fact that uh, you, Zeke Fox, are going to be um, a guest at the uh, October third, fortieth anniversary grants conference. And besides, um, number go up, and, and Zeke, there's going to be—we uh, have some speakers, including David Einhorn and Jeffrey Gunlack and David Abrams and uh, Harley Bassman, Paul Singer, uh, David Dredge, who I. Mitch Cantor, who I had left out, Harris, and I don't think anyone. But um, it's going to be a day full of very stimulating uh, financial discussion, a lot of good ideas, I hope. And um, so come, yeah, October 3rd at the Plaza. I'm, I'm really excited to, to be there. Yeah. And my kids are going to be really impressed that I went to Eloise's house. Yes. Well, um, you must come, and the books will precede you there, and uh, it's going to be a great day. And this is one wonderful book, so thank you for having written it, and thank you for being with us today. And ladies and gentlemen, thank you as well, Harrison. Thanks for uh, pressing the right keys. And um, I am Jim Grant, and this is uh, Kurt Yield, Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. Talk to you next time.